And our special guest, and I'd like you to welcome her, is Janine Di Giovanni. Thank you. Now, she is a war reporter, and in, those of us in, in the trade have enormous respect for people who report wars because we have a clue, uh, an idea, of how immensely difficult it is to do it well, um, and I think she does it very well. And I'm just going to read to you, I'm going to get her to talk a bit about, we're going to do a Q&A, &A, I'll get, talk a bit about her life, but she's, what I think is interesting is that she took herself off to the Iowa Writers Workshop uh, and to learn about writing, uh, well at least that's what I presume she did, and then she also did a Masters in Comparative Literature at the University of London. So, I think what I'm fascinated by, Janine, is how you always worked out that it wasn't just going to be the trained observation, it was the use of the language to convey something to people who were a long way from war. Now, this is, for instance, at page 131 of her latest book, The Morning They Came For Us. War means endless waiting, endless boredom. There is no electricity, so no television. You can't read. You can't see friends. You grow depressed, but there's no treatment for it. And it makes no sense to complain, because everyone is as badly off as you. It's hard to fall in love, or rather to stay in love. If you're a teenager, you seem halted in time. If you're critically ill with cancer, for instance, there's no chemotherapy for you. If you can't leave the country for treatment, you stay and die slowly and in tremendous pain. Victorian diseases return, polio, typhoid, cholera. You see very sick people around you who seemed in perfectly good health when you last saw them during peacetime. You hear coughing all the time. Everyone hacks from the dust of destroyed buildings, from disease, from cold. Now, I do think lovely short sentences and just beautifully chosen words, I think you'll agree it takes you there, and there's, there's more like that. But this is what I'm really intrigued by as a journalist, is the use of language to break the mould. I'm absolutely fascinated with this business of breaking the mould of a template, because we're constantly encouraged in journalism. Uh, we have to file so often these days because there's fewer of us and we've got to file on more platforms, that it's a real temptation to just go back, <laughs> to repeat, repeat, to, in effect, get into the reaction mode. So I'm going to welcome you, Janine, and talk and ask you, first of all, just to talk about that, then I'll take you back to your origins. But do, are you consciously trying to break the mould of war reporting as you know it? Not consciously. Um, I think when I started out, I was very young, and we'll probably talk about this, I didn't really see a mould. I mean, I had read quite a few books um, from the Vietnam era, all written by men. And then I discovered the work of Martha Gellhorn, who was um, the third wife of Ernest Hemingway, although she would hate <laughs> she was like to be described like that because <laughs> they had a terrible divorce. Um, but she was someone who wrote in a very, uh, not compassionate, because compa she was compassionate, but it was much more um, about actually bringing you as a reader there. And I feel that war is so horrific that the, the need to bring a reader into the urgency of it and how people actually feel, what they're going through, what it smells like. There's always this very unique smell in, in war zones and in, in different places. And sometimes I'm walking down the street and I catch a smell and it's like a Proustian moment. And I think, wow, that reminds me of Sarajevo or East Timor where that's what it was like in Pristina. And it unleashes this whole torrent of, of memories of these places. So I think in a is sense... Is it of chaos then? Chaos in war zones? Yeah, is that what you're smelling, if you know what I mean? Different things. I mean, for instance, Africa, um, there's a smell very early in the morning that is, I don't know what it is, it's, it's the earth, um, but it's something the minute I'm back in Africa, I smell it, and I just, I could close my eyes, and it's, I know where I am. Um, and I think it, these kind of sensory things, right. I'm trying to write about them, I'm trying to get very deeply 
into them so that I could paint a picture because otherwise, if I wrote about the intricacies of the Syrian war and the proxy war and the politics, which I do, you do. try to get into, I think I'd lose you. <laughs> if I wrote an entire book just about that, I would lose your interest pretty early on. And I don't want to. I really, I don't want people to look away from this. I want them to face it, and it's painful and it hurts. And my mother always says to me, I can't read your books, I can't read your articles, they make me too sad. And I think that's the reaction I want, although I want you to read them. <laughs> um, I just, my, my whole purpose is for people not to look away from this, no matter how far away we are from it. You do say that, and I, I'm just one more, one, I think this is a marvelous description, I think, of doing exactly what you're trying to describe. I know about the velocity of war. Just was a love, interesting word you chose. In all of the wars I have covered, including in Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Chechnya, Somalia, Kosovo, Libya, and more, the moments in which everything changes from normal to extremely abnormal share a similar quality. One evening in Abidjan, in Ivory Coast in 2002, for instance, I went to bed after dinner at a lavish Italian restaurant. When I woke up, there was no telephone service and no radio, radio broadcast in the capital. Rebels occupied the television station and flares shot through the sky. So I, I thought that was, again, a very clever... I mean, I could cope. I have to say, I'm a little bit with your mother in some of it. I did take a big, deep breath, and I thought, oh, I know this. I don't need to have it rammed home again. That's what I thought. Um, you think you do have to ram it home to me, do you? I think what I was trying to put across is, um, look, we're in a beautiful city right now. We're in Sydney. We're in Australia. We're far away from Syria. We're far away from ISIS. We think, okay, war can't come to us. But what I'm trying to convey is how quickly it has descended in places like Sarajevo. That was in the Ivory Coast. And... Um, I, I went to the Ivory Coast with my then husband because it was the only beacon of stability in Western Africa. It was a calm, peaceful place. And what happened? I went to bed one night and literally war broke out. And the quickness of it, the speed at which you go to a bank machine to put your card in and it doesn't work. Or you turn on the TV and there's you know those fuzzy lines and your friends are fleeing the country and you see hordes of people, refugees on the road. It happens in hours, days. Mm. And that's why um, I'm always uh, perhaps maybe too conscious of how easily war happens. That's why right now, right before we came on stage, um, when I nearly fell climbing on the stage, we were talking about France and uh, I live in Paris. French elections are coming up. And I said, I think Marine Le Pen is going to win, who's an extreme right-wing politician. Um, the, the, the quickness of how fast a country could descend into chaos is just so much faster than we could imagine. And I'm always very conscious of that. And I just say that because Europe right now is very uh, unstable with the Brexit in England, with the rise of right-wing parties, with the mm. massive migrant and refugee crisis, so... Let's just take a couple of minutes for that. So you feel this, do you? You feel a brittleness, do you? I do, and I feel, and maybe it's just because I'm hypersensitive to the coming of war, yeah. but I feel very much that we're in a 1936-type situation, you know, pre the rise of the Nazi party, the the preclude to World War II. Um, and maybe I'm overreacting, but I, the more I look around, the more I, I feel even people's reactions to the right-wing parties. In Holland, Scandinavia, Scandinavia, Sweden has just reintroduced the draft. <laughs> Lovely, peaceful Sweden. Why? Because they're very concerned about Russia's encroaching into Europe. Um, there's a lot of very jittery feelings, and I uh, think you know Donald Trump, as we were also talking about, hasn't helped this situation. Um, he's put the war, the world, into a much more of a us and them. 
good guys and bad guys, which it's not like that. So yes, I, I'm very anxious. Which of course, and if you know your history, you know, because this is what animates me, I've got to say, it was the Social Democrats who vacated the stage in the 30s, yeah. the people who might have had a chance to stop the onrush of the fascists, who said, oh, whatever, they sort of seemed to give up. And I think it's an incredible warning or, you know, message to a lot of people who might be here today, you know, you've got to get in there and stay there and argue your case. But we don't learn, do we? I mean, we're supposed to learn from history. We're supposed to look back and say, um, we learned what happened in World War II. We should never let that happen again. And in um, December, when Aleppo fell, I was so crushed because I felt, I mean, I took it very personally, not that I am a soldier or a diplomat or someone that actually could have controlled whether or not Aleppo fell, but I thought, we said, never again, that we would never sit by and allow a genocide to happen, allow to see humanity at its very worst, people suffering at this kind of level. And yet we allowed Aleppo to be absolutely raised without doing anything. And of course, having come of age during the Bosnian War, mm. Srebrenica, after Srebrenica, we said never again, and yet here it was. And then. For about a week, the world was really horrified at what happened in Aleppo, and then and it was over. Uh, you do, in fact, say how much um, Bosnia and Sarajevo has really dominated so much of your life. life. <laughs> Why so? Uh, should, maybe you should just set the scene for people who mightn't be exactly sure what we're talking about. You know, I, I was a, a very young, naive young woman who went to Bosnia and really naive. I, I um, came from a very protected Italian-American family. Um, Joycey. Joycey girl. Yes. Um, I, I didn't expect to see human beings turn on each other to that extent. I always believed in humanity. I still believe in humanity. I still, despite everything, I, I'm optimistic for people and for human beings. But Bosnia had a, a huge, huge impact on me, and I think it's where I learned how to become a reporter, where I learned how to become a human being. What, and do, you, what do you mean? I think, I think a lot of it was because we were living in Sarajevo, in a besieged city, with the population. So it wasn't a matter of journalists, you know, being... In a green, in a green zone. In a green zone, mm -hmm. or journalists being, you know, reporting from outside. We were amongst the people. And the, the, the group of correspondents that worked in Sarajevo at that time were very, very committed, maybe more so than we should have been, because we were, we became almost like social workers. But then again, how could you not? If you're somewhere and there's a bombing and someone needs to get to the hospital, you're gonna scoop up their bloody body and, and get them to a hospital. If someone is dying in front of you, you're going to try to give them first aid. If there's a child... Did you file first and then do that? This is the great, you know, the great question. Or what? How did you think about that? No, I, I think... Lucky, luckily, I worked for a weekly newspaper at that point. But I did... You know, one of my great friends there was Kurt Shork, who worked for Reuters, who was killed in Sierra Leone when I was working with him there, murdered in, in Sierra Leone. Um, and he worked for Reuters, which was a wire service, in those days with no cell phones, so, I mean, he really had deadlines, and he was the first person to bring someone to the hospital or to give first aid or to save someone. Um, so, no, I think in this case, it was much more like Spanish Civil War. Great passion. Mm. Passion about um, there is a right thing to do and there is a wrong thing to do. And I think that's... I think, I think Bosnia taught me about... Um, doing the right thing. But it's interesting, there are two very interesting observations that you say, we were often accused of falling in love with Sarajevo because it was a European conflict, a war whose victims looked like us, who sat in cafes and loved uh, Philip Roth and Susan Sontag. As reporters, we lived among the people of Sarajevo. We saw the West turn its back and felt helpless. This was a dis the, the destruction or the uh, decline of Yugoslavia. Um, you know, that's, a, that's quite a strong self-analysis. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, Rwanda was 
going on simultaneously. Let's go back to 1994. Um, the genocide started in Rwanda in April, late spring, and Bosnia in 1994 was at a stalemate, still heavy shelling um, in Sarajevo and throughout the country. I, I went from Sarajevo to Rwanda. Um, a million people were killed in Rwanda in that genocide, which was three or four months. I mean, a very short period. And the other thing which struck me, which will haunt me till the day I die, is that it was a labor-intensive killing. It wasn't, you know, lining people up and shooting them. It was killing them in churches where they were hiding with machetes. It takes a lot to kill, to murder someone with a machete. So it really was systematic brutality. But why didn't we report that? Why weren't we there more? Why weren't we focused on the whole build-up to what happened in Rwanda? Was it because there were black people? Was it because it was Africa? I don't know. I mean, I, I constantly feel that we, we do not cover Africa the way it should be covered. Um, but Somalia, there's... there's well, it's happening now. I mean, I, I just did it on my Saturday morning program because I realised to my horror that I... Um, we had famine declared. Four you know, famines. Seriously issue. Somalia seriously issue. and South Sudan. Indeed, in South Sudan and, and even Nigeria and... Um, Yemen. Uh, and Yemen. And that there's so much happening in the world, we just averted our gaze from this thing growing, as it were, so, so we covered it. Um, but there is something else that you said which was very interesting, that after, you know, the terrible rapes and so on, I think this was Sarajevo, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it was the victims not the perpetrators who dropped their eyes in shame when they passed one another. How interesting. So people had to go on living with each other with the most ghastly still. things that happened. Still, that's still. still. And the victims were the ones who slunk away. This is why I, I just had an um, interview with a lovely journalist from Marie Claire before I came in here, and she said to me, why do you keep doing this? And this is why. Because um, I, I go back to Bosnia a lot, but, but about two years ago, I went back to Srebrenica, and I met with this young woman who had been in Focha, one of the rape camps. Um, she had to still see the guys that raped her every single day. They have never been called to the Hague War Tribunal. They never will, because they're little fish. They weren't the big politicians, they weren't the big leaders. And I, I sat with this young woman who had been held in a school, turned into a rape camp, raped up to 16 times a day as a very young girl. I think she was a virgin before she was raped. Um, her life will never be the same. How would you feel if there was absolutely no retribution for what had happened to you, nothing. And you had to see these guys who, who then could sneer at you. And, you know, I never forget talking to her. It just, she said, can you help me? And, and that's when I'm sure you know this, this feeling when you know you have to, we're, we're just journalists, we're not prosecutors, we don't work for the UN, we're not doctors. There's a limit to what we can do, but we can tell their story. Mm. And I, I just, you know, I see her face. This all is the, the woman time. who was the translator and who, who seemed to be. Is that that one who was, yes, seemed to be yeah. okay and then had a psychotic attack? Uh, um, and you. Oh, that was another. Oh, that's, that's another, another case. That's um, that's a, Kos a woman from Kosovo. Kosovo. Um, but just so many women have endured. Women and men. Um, I, I met male men who had been raped in Bosnia, who then had to live in the same town in Srebrenica with the. the people who had done, did, done it to them. Um, so it's for them. You know, that's why we, we do our job. I was going to do this later, but maybe I'll introduce it now, because I interviewed uh, last year in Dublin a man called David Reef, uh, who's, yeah, yeah. you know David, because he was From reporting. Sarajevo, yeah. From Sarajevo. Susan, Susan Sontag's Sontag's son. <laughs> And interestingly, he, he has written this book called In Praise of Forgetting, which, uh, which is a very interesting book, because he emerged with a slightly different view to you. He, he thinks that sometimes, um, particularly, say, in the old Yugoslavia, people had memories, acute memories, that went back to sort of uh, 1457. Yeah, oh, they do. And, and he thinks that in order to promote peace, you sometimes have to consciously forget. 
You've got to decide, as it were, that you have to, you will not hold on to those grievances, um, and that even when they haven't necessarily been properly dealt with, in order to move on. Now, I just wonder how you feel about that. Well, when. Last year, I, I went back to school again to get another master's degree, and this time in international law, because I felt that I wanted to take all my years and years and years, more than 25 years now, of field work and put it into a legal context so that I could have a greater understanding about war crimes and how to bring these people to... how to bring justice to people who deserve it. Interestingly enough, Two countries, I feel, have managed to have true reconciliation. Rwanda and South Africa. And in a sense, it's, it's not so much forgetting about forgiving. And I know it's that people will say, how can you forgive after these horrific things? But Mandela, mm. you know, going back to Mandela's, Nelson Mandela's ability to forgive mm. after what had happened to him. In order to go forward to reconciliation, to peace. David's very right, He's tr it's right about Yugoslavia. People talk about 1347, the Battle of Kosovo Polje constantly, or what happened in World War I, or what happened to my family in World War II. And they hang on to these memories, which is what I think is going to happen in Syria as well. Um, and I think people are unable to process the pain until they work through this cycle. But that means that they hang on to the hatred and they hang on to the vengeance and the need for vengeance. And a lot of these crimes that happened in Bosnia, especially the more horrific ones, the rape, mm. um, the genocide, the, the camps, the concentration camps. When I would talk to people who did it and people who suffered from it, they would say, well, you know, his grandfather killed my grandfather in World War II. So that's why when I got power, I put him in jail. Same thing happening now in Iraq. It's retribution, it's Sunni killing, then Shia killing, then Sunni killing, and it goes on and on. So how do we break this cycle of hatred. Well, it's very, I mean, you know, before we, we will get to Syria in just a second, because I then want to give people a chance to talk, but um, Cambodia is a very, very interesting example of this, because if you go to Cambodia, you find the young people, because you just suddenly realise there's no older people, especially no older men. There are a few older women, but there's no older people. Yeah. They're all gone. They're literally, you know, they were killed, sort of thing. And the young ones, they are sick of the war. They're sick of the horror, because it was so horrific. They want to move on. And in fact, they make the, the younger versions of the people who survive uh, feel often quite... Um, What's the word? You know, they almost uh, quarantine them. Oh no, you know. Please, uh, young move Bosnians on. don't want to think about the war now. They um, don't want to. No, young generation. Um, they they really want to move on. They want to be part of Europe. They want to forget what their parents went through. It's tricky, isn't it? Because uh, you know, I mean, that that's that real. Uh, over, because the South Africans, for instance, and the Rwandans, they chose to go right into it to look at. The look at the demon in the face. Truth and reconciliation brave. commissions. Yes. I mean, they, they looked at it, they had justice for it, and then they were able to move. I think you, you must bring justice, and you must have these kind of trials of, of truth sort. and reconciliation and looking within and what caused this and how can we not repeat it in order to, to somehow cleanse. But when you, when you close up a wound mm. that's still festering, like Bosnia, I mean, in the end, the way the war ended in Bosnia was to just freeze it. The Dayton Peace Accords stopped the war, stopped the killing, but it froze hate. It froze it. It froze front lines. It rewarded the perpetrators of violence with the land they had gotten at that point. So, I, you know, I would not be surprised. I don't want to see it, but another war um, truly bubbling up there in a decade or so. Well, look, let's, because you, for the last, what is it, um, since the beginning of the Arab Spring, really, you've devoted uh, a lot of your attention to the Middle East. You're now Middle East editor of Newsweek. And particularly the last six years, your concentration has been on the war in Syria. And you were warned, you put it in your introduction, uh, um, obviously a well-meaning diplomat said to you, Janine, don't go there. This will claim you. This, this, you will, this will get to you, as Bosnia did. He warned you. Now, has it? It has. 
Um, it has, and probably even in a more painful way. Really? Because at least in Bosnia, I felt that we reporters had some effect. That what we were, first of all, we were there. We could live there. It was dangerous. You could get killed by a sniper or you could get killed by bombing. But you didn't have these insane jihadists called ISIS who wanted to kidnap you and behead you, which is the fate of two of my yes. friends and colleagues, Steve very, Sutloff. And very Jim. hard to read that, I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're unable to cover the war in Syria properly. We could in the beginning. Even me at one point, I just said, I can't. I can't go there anymore because I don't want to get kidnapped. I really can't. I don't want to. I'm a mother, you know. I don't want to spend, be chained to a radiator for the next 10 years or beheaded on camera in an orange jumpsuit. It's not the way I want to go. And I won't do any good. I'll do more good going to Yemen now, writing about the famine, than I will going to Syria right now. Um, I feel very frustrated about what's happened in Syria, and I feel that we betrayed the Syrian people in many ways, because I think that um, we journalists are, we write and we, we do radio and we do TV in order to affect policymakers who then can make a difference. And we did that in Bosnia. I'm really proud of what my colleagues and I did. We kept going, we kept going to the point where finally there was humanitarian intervention. In terms of Syria, that was never going to happen. Um, President Obama made the decision very early on that he did not want to get involved in another Middle Eastern war. He had just come out of Afghanistan and Iraq. Therefore... You can it, understand that, though. I can. Absolutely, I can. But I also do think if you want to be the leader of the so-called free world, you need to step up to moral decisions. And I'm not saying we should have invaded Syria in no way. I did not support the war in Iraq or Afghanistan. You didn't think there should be troops on the ground? No, no way. I don't, but I do think we should have had humanitarian quarters. We should have very early on had some kind of strategic strikes that would have sent a message to Assad saying, you are not going to get away with this. You will not kill children. You will not bomb hospitals. You will not kill doctors, nurses, medical workers. You will not starve people to death in besieged areas by not letting humanitarian trucks go through. You will not do this because we are watching you. That's not what happened. But how, we abandoned them. You know, we won't dwell on this, but like, I can't tell you how much time I've thought about and tried <laughs> to think about this. What could we have done that was sufficiently, what could the Allies, I suppose, have done that was sufficiently frightening, like you'd have to really go for it, wouldn't you, and risk a bigger war no, in order to sufficiently... Lot. And you think that was we worth We could that? have done a lot before, before the Russians got involved. Before the Russians got before, involved. When, once the Russians were involved in 2015, it's now World War III. Because let's say we had a no-fly zone, we shot down a Russian plane, there you go. It's a Cold War all over again which is what the Russians wanted in the first place by getting involved. Um, they wanted to up the ante and they wanted to get their foothold into the Middle East. What we could have done very easily was back in 2013 after the Ghouta chemical attack of having very strategic strikes, not even as long as Kosovo, which was 78 days, I think, but just enough that would have taken out some of the positions that were, that were endangering civilians, uh. Aleppo, Homs, Hama, towns that were really, really suffering, also the besieged areas. So even if you couldn't work out who to support, quotes, quotes, in the rebels, because they mm -hmm. what a mess yeah, they were, you're saying, don't worry about that, because I think that was part of it. People said, well, who, who, who would we be for? You're saying that you should have sent clear warning signs, we're watching you. Listen, I think as far back as 2011, in the first days of Dara, which is where the, uh, the uprising began in Syria, when the children who put the graffiti on the wall were imprisoned and tortured. I think had there been a very strong diplomatic, diplomatic message way back then, mm. saying, you're not going to do this. If you do this, President Assad, you will go the way of Gaddafi. You're going to mm. die in the streets. Let's, let's sit down and talk about this. I think there could have been a lot more emphasis on diplomatic um, negotiation, mm -hmm. and he, I think he would have backed down. I think a lot could have been done that wasn't done, but 
It's hindsight now, isn't it? it? Is. I don't like to do this, to look back and say, we should have done this, we should have done this. Now I think we have to look forward and say, what's the end game? What's Syria going to look like? What's going to happen with the Kurds? How are we going to protect, protect minorities? Um, what about what's going to happen in Lebanon? What about Iraq? What about the rise of ISIS? I mean, all these are really, this is what we need to now focus on, looking ahead. Can you see that? I mean, can you see? See, I don't even know how much. I often wonder how much war reporters do bother to look at the politics of war, because actually, you know, the older I get, the more fascinated I am by the politics of war rather than the on the ground. Because yeah. I realise yeah. there's so much happening bigger picture. that you can't see, and it takes clever people. But it, but it's hard, and it's you know, it's smoke rooms, and it's finicky, and a lot of people think it's quite. Um, inglorious, if you know what I mean. They say, oh gosh, how awful, you know, when it's much better to talk to the, to the man who runs the hospital on the ground. But I mean, do you try to look forward and look, say, at this Trump administration, heaven? Oh God. I mean, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> thinking about Syria? I mean, who's going to do it? Well, they don't even have, I mean, you know, the, the Tillerson, the foreign secretary, was in Europe last week by himself. He doesn't even have staff. Um, no one wants to work for them, so uh, let's leave Trump. I, you know, I can't even think about it, but it's bad. It's really bad. Um, Syria. Um, I, I think that. So yes, Syria. Yes. Is, is it is it Putin, for goodness' sake, that we've got to deal with somehow or other? This is, I think, what we really need to think about. Look, Syria's being carved up right now in in a kind of in, in a massive proxy war, which is basically. Iran and Russia, with Russia really, um, really wanting their position there, versus Turkey, um, Qatar, Saudi, lesser so, the West, what I, um, who, who once did come to the aid of the rebels. Um, what, what's really interesting to me, and this is something I never would have done as a young war reporter, was I spent about six months um, last year diving really deeply into the, the whole negotiation process. And this, again, was while I was doing my, my third master's degree, um, which you know, isn't going to earn me any more money or anything. But it it was, makes you a much more interesting woman. <laughs> um, and I followed Stefan de Mistura, the, the UN um, envoy, around for about six months, watching how negotiations actually work. Because I spent my career mocking the UN and, you know, taking them to task for everything they do and thinking they're a joke and thinking they do nothing and they're bloated and they spend too much money. All that I still think is true, essentially, but um, I wanted to see how they do it. And, and it was really fascinating to see how negotiators put together negotiations, how they actually work, how much time they spend just trying to get people to sit around a table in the same room, let alone you know, get them talking about the constitution or governance or prisoner exchanges. Um, so I think what you're did saying- Did you develop respect for them? I, I did, Mistura, I had huge amount of respect for because I'm someone that, you know, you and I are journalists, we're passionate, we can lose it, we can say, he never can. He's always got to keep that kind of level. Um, and he's an extremely good diplomat. Although, you know, the, the talks, Geneva 4 just folded last night, and again, you know, Demistura said, oh, the train is in the station, we just need the accelerator. And it's like, what does that mean? Is the war gonna end or what? Mm. Um, so we're no closer to the end of a war. But yes, I have a great respect for these guys. Now I'm going to invite, we're going to open it in just about a minute. So if you'd like to make your way down to the two microphones, we'd love to hear from you. It's very hard to see, but someone can wave at me, I'm sure, and because uh, we've got 17 minutes to go. Um, just before we leave that, um, and do identify yourself if you don't mind, and try to keep it to a minute, thank you, rather than a major statement, a question would be lovely. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so if because I've actually watched Demistura with a, I think he's admirable. Uh, I think he never stops trying, and I never really give him trying. a huge tick. So what if he was successful? job in the world. Oh, I just think it's a wretched job. Um, what, what will Syria look like, do you think, if, if the best happened and it stopped the bloodletting, what would it look like? Well, in my view, and this is my view only, um, Assad has won. 
I think at this point we have to say that he has militarily won the war with the fall of Aleppo, which was the, the, um, the rebels' headquarters or, or capital. Um, this was heavy bombing by Russia, wasn't it, I think, as I recall? Just absolute, not even heavy bombing, just like as much killing as they could possibly do. I, I was in Grozny when the, the capital of Chechnya, when it, when it fell, and I know what the Russians are capable of doing. They have absolutely no respect for, for human life. Um, so they leveled it. And um, I, think, I think that Assad has won, and the question is now, how are they going to put all the pieces together? Um, the Kurds, too, who were not invited to the talks, but have played a very significant yeah. role in fighting against ISIS. Where are they going to go? Mm. Um, so it's, it'll be about putting people into geographic positions and then... it is going to be like post-World War One, then, you know, with... Redrawing the map of the Middle of East. Sykes-Picot, et cetera, et cetera. Possibly. I mean, because Sykes-Picot was, um, in a sense, false, false borders. Yeah. Yeah. Iraq came apart at the seams, and so is Syria, and let's hope Lebanon maintains peace, because they're under a huge amount of stress oh. with the refugee crisis there. But Now, yes, please, you... do go ahead. Um, hi, it's, it's great to hear you. It's incredibly interesting. It's such a faraway world from what we live day to day. Thank um, you. My question to you is, how has war reporting affected the way you experience your personal life? Has it numbed you? Has it made everything more vivid? Um, you know, there was a long time when I would say, you know, no, it hasn't affected me in any way, but I, I think that would be really lying to myself and lying to you. Um, because of course it has. You know, just the way I do everything, the way I go into a hotel room and immediately look for exits, the way I only take, you know, rooms on third floor, fourth floor, you know, the way... Why? Why? Because if, if I need to run down the stairs, I, you know, if I need to get out quickly or... Or if there's a bombing, I don't want to be on a top floor or a bottom floor. Um, after my son was born, I had kind of like what I can only think of now as a sort of mini breakdown. And I, I kept hoarding water. Um, endless, endless, endless amounts of water, bottled water, um, and, and medical supplies. And finally, my ex-husband now, but my husband at the time said, you know, you really need to talk to someone about this because you're not in Sarajevo. And I said, um, yeah, but look what happened in the Ivory Coast. We, we had a beautiful life, and then, and then one minute there was a war, and I was locked in a room with a metal door, and I, all I had was my radio, and my batteries died. And so I think I kind of... Um, I'm always living as though anything could happen. Mm. You know, I have copies of my passport and my son's passport, I always have a bit of cash at home. And my poor little boy, who's a wonderful little boy, um, it, the other day he said something to me. Um, we were going to Berlin for a, a holiday, a little holiday weekend. He said, Mom, we don't need to take a lot. We just need to take some supplies, some water, a Swiss Army knife, some medical supplies. And I looked at him and I thought, oh dear, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely story. Yeah, I'm a bit nutty. He's, he just turned 13. He's the child of two war reporters. The poor kid. <laughs> yes, please. Hi, thank you for your very interesting insights. This is a question, I suppose, about Syria and about media. Um, when the news of the fall of Aleppo broke in the media um, last year, amongst certain circles here, there was a lot of questioning of what we call the mainstream media, which is now a very uh, sort of MSM. Fake news? Um, is it fake news? I'm not sure. It's not quite like fake news. It's sort of this, this feeling amongst certain people that mainstream media can't be trusted and that it's controlled by corporate sort of um, interests and therefore is not trustworthy. And it really came to a head during the fall of Aleppo because people were saying this portrayal of the besieged city of Aleppo and the aggressor Assad was not the truth and that what was really happening in Aleppo which was not being reported by the mainstream media was very different to that the rebels who had become quite um, portrayed as heroes through various um, charity fundraising campaigns for example were not as heroic as people thought and I remember the you Syria spoke about campaign. it yeah. yeah you spoke about it a little bit on Twitter but I wondered what you thought firstly about that about what you think the truth was and secondly about this idea that the mainstream media is no longer trustworthy because if it isn't then we're really as normal people here 
um, in a real difficulty to understand what on earth is going on in the world. I thank you for your question. Um, I don't know what the mainstream media is because, for instance, I worked for Rupert Murdoch for years for the Times and the Sunday Times, who is I, that is you know the evil empire. But but I never had any issues. I could write whatever I wanted to. I was never censored. I did absolutely, you know, I was completely off the grid. I don't know if it would still be like that. So I assume the mainstream media is the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, that kind of thing, right? I um, yeah, and also the BBC was named and the ABC in Australia, which, you know, yeah. we've grown to trust. So, again, quite and you shocking. Should. You should trust them. Um, no, see, I, I think that, okay, what happened in Aleppo was that, and this is you probably know this, but for everyone to know, there's two ways of reporting the war in Syria. One is you're a journalist they like, meaning you're Russian, Chinese, Iranian, or you're someone that is very um, pro-Assad, and then you get a visa. And if you get a visa, you're allowed to go to Damascus and to the, uh, Aleppo with them. But they so don't... You're you're embedded, but even more so because you're embedded with the regime. Um, and I, believe it or not, they gave me five or six visas until I wrote about the massacre in Durea, and then they told me never come back. But, um, and, you know, so the people that were going to Aleppo from the Assad side were giving a completely different version. But that was equally propaganda. I mean, they had a few Russian reporters. There was a Canadian blogger who was saying things like... Um, Oh, the people here don't want to run away. They're afraid of, of the, the rebels. Okay, on the other side, the rebels. And I've been writing this since 2011, 2012. There are no good guys and bad guys in this war. It's not really a Bosnia where you could say, again, and there were gray lines there too. There's good guys, there's bad guys. In Bosnia, there were civilians who were getting absolutely pummeled by Bosnian Serbs in Syria, in Aleppo, what I always say is the good guys are the civilians who are just totally caught in the middle. The rebels, as you know, factioned out to so many different pieces. They became jihadists. In the last time I was there in 2013, I stayed with people um, from one of the, I don't want to say, one of the um, branches of the, of the rebels. They wouldn't even let me come out of my room because I was a woman. They left my food for me outside my door. That's how radically people were changing. So I think there's truth in, I think you have to read things and you have to read a lot of things. This is what I do. I'm not saying read Breitbart or whatever it's called, Trump's, um, you know, but, but you have to read a lot of things and then you have to do your own research. I mean, these days, to be honest, what I do is I read a lot of academic stuff coming out of um, Syria, the academics and the, the researchers. Um, and as for the, the videos that people were making on the ground from Aleppo, well, at that point, that was all we had. But you, again, had to take that with a grain of salt. Was that little girl making her own videos or was that coming from the, the Free Syrian Army? We don't know. I hope that, did that answer it? You know, it is interesting. I mean, I think one of the dilemmas, because um, imagine what it's like to hear that question when you sit in the media trying to serve you properly. I think one of the dilemmas is that the... Um, I think we have been brought up on war stories with right and wrong, actually. We, mm. and I, this is what I mean about the politics of war. I think we receive rather um, histories of victories and defeats, um, and I think more than we realise, we're inculcated into that notion. And the idea that these are immensely complex things with <laughs> uh, where the, the awful, where the regime is responsible for the most awful things, but possibly it kept the factions working together, the, the various uh, minorities were able to live under it, just like the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah. Had, it, it actually allowed for enormous minority uh, or Saddam driving. Or well, yes, yeah, Saddam. But I mean, he, ke he kept mm. once yes, he, he, he kept things together, and then once he left, it once he was killed, it was it was. Yes, clear. indeed, that's quite right. And, and I, so I think it's, I there. think it's the complexity. Actually, I do think the media in Syria has tried uh, to say this. What I also think is never said is that your listening and viewing audience gets to a point, and I know you'll hate me, so 
of utter exhaustion because yeah. they say, we just, if they can't solve it in any way, yeah. and it's all so horrific, I just don't know what to do. So I'll just turn the whole thing off. Of course, I mean, it's a natural it, compassion fatigue. How much misery can you take? I mean, it, it, it's true. I think, I think it is a natural reaction that people have that, but I, I think we have to, we have to combat that. Yes, we have yes. to fight against it because, I mean, this is, we are human beings. This is, this is our world. And your stories, it was the same with Michael Burke years ago, the great uh, BBC reporter yeah. who, who reported the Ethiopian famine. And yeah. I always remember going and hearing him. And he said he worked out that he couldn't solve a famine, <laughs> but he could affect the people who could yeah, make absolutely. an effort. And he That's did it by telling the stories of the people and saying, you know your grandmother? Here she is. And, he, and, and your brother, here he is. So he went into their homes and he made us feel like we were meeting people who lived down yeah. the road, but they were living in Ethiopia and they were starving. It was, yeah. I just, it was one of the most profound sort of lessons in my craft that I got anyway. Um, More so questions. thank you. Yeah. Is, is that a new, yeah, is that a second question, is it? Okay. One person, but um, <laughs> Hi, Janine and Geraldine, thank you so much for the talk. I was just interested to know um, a bit more about how you experienced being a war reporter, specifically as a woman, and like your experiences of sexism. Obviously, it's very different than being a male like war reporter. So I was interested in that from your side. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's changed a lot now. There's a mu much more, many more women in the field um, than when I started out. Um, when I did start out, there were, there were very few women. It was very much a male-dominated field. And how did the men treat me? Um, I had some real cases of uh, working for Murdoch, not Murdoch himself, but um, some of my senior editors who blatantly said things now that I think, you know, I read about all the sexual harassment cases and I think, my God, the stuff we put up with. And, and in those days, you know, it was almost as though I just, I just kept my head down and, and thought, what a jerk, and got on with it. Um, I never, it never occurred to me to complain about it, to bring it to a tribunal. I just thought, you know, this is part of my fate. I'm a woman. I'm just going to do it. Having said that, I tried to blend in as much as I could. I, you know, I love beautiful clothes and beautiful things, but I, I, I don't, do not dress like this when I'm in the field. And, these days, sometimes when I see female television reporters going to places like Afghanistan and Iraq, not really respectful what, what they look like. And I just think, you know, don't wear really tight jeans and, you know, cover yourself a bit with a, put on a scarf. I think you, um, you know, you, you have to be mindful of those things. But the biggest problem for women, the biggest, and something men do not have to deal with, is that we tend to try to make our careers in our 20s and 30s. And traditionally, that is the time when you're supposed to be having babies, right? So no one, no one will say to you, um, don't forget to have a baby. But that's what happens. And when I look around, it's really interesting. I mean, I actually, someone did say to me, don't forget to have a baby, and I didn't. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I have a son um, who's my life's blessing. Um, but so many of my female colleagues who are the same age as me or my generation don't have children. Um, they just, they... And they wanted them? They wanted them. They, some, you know, there's one or two who didn't, but most of my friends desperately wanted children. And it was just they were so busy working or getting on with their lives, because I do think we've got to work, and men will hate this, I'm sorry. I think we have to work twice as hard to prove ourselves. Um, and I can't tell you the number of Christmas, Easter, birthdays, um, summer holidays that I spent working in the field because my editors, male, would call me and say, Janine's not married and she doesn't have a kid, she'll go. Mm. And off I would go because it was my duty. Um, so that's the one thing I'd say. And then when you have a child, Again, I found, and maybe this was because I was working for the Murdoch Empire and there was a kind of ingrained nastiness to it, but um, when I had a tiny baby, they sent me to Baghdad when my son was six months old, and it was almost like a test. Um, and I remember I was so upset and I was so fragile, and you know, I was hormonal, I was still breastfeeding, 
And when I got to the bureau, and it was at the height of the surge, it, it was a horrible, hor horrible time in Baghdad, one of my male colleagues deliberately um, assigned me to go do the most dangerous stuff to test my nerve. And, you know, I had this tiny baby at home, and I thought I was going to get killed. And I remember one time I said, no, I'm not going. And I heard him, overheard him on the phone talking to someone saying, Di Giovanni's lost her nerve. Oh, my God. I swear to you. <laughs> and I remember calling my husband at the time on the satellite phone, crying and crying and crying. And at the same time, without being too graphic, I was, I was breastfeeding, so I'd go into this, the bathroom and throw away milk. And so I was a complete mess and crying. And, he, and I said, and he said, I lost my nerve. And Bruno said to me, but that's a good thing, isn't it? That's a really good thing that you want to stay alive and you don't want to get hurt. There's nothing wrong with that. What a smart man. Now, I've just, we've just, we, well, I've just, you've been I hope waiting. That I'll just very question. quickly ask you to ask and then you can reply. Sure. Um, I'm a journalist too and I've just remembered to have a baby myself, um, or I am remembering at the moment. Um, I um, just want to thank you for the decades that you've spent taking the risk and also taking on the trauma to reveal as close to truth as we can. Thank you. Um, and also, you know, when journalists did start being executed in Syria, it was incredibly traumatic for the journalist community and for the community at large. Um, and obviously what's happened ever since has made it very difficult for journalists to go in. Do you know of any foreign journalists going into those Syrian war zones now in Aleppo and other places? Um, and how are the Syrians receiving them now compared to how they were at the beginning of the conflict? There's still people going with visas. They do give them to people. I know people that get visas and go in and out. Um, through the Aleppo, going, crossing over the Turkish border, uh, you know, ISIS has taken control of um, most of that part where we used to cross Al-Bab. Um, but, you know, I think that Arab journalists can go, have gone. I don't want to say no one's gone, because of course then you'll always find one Polish journalist that disguised himself and, and went, crossed over. I think there you know, are people, I think they are taking huge risks, mainly for the kidnapping, um, which isn't made any easier when governments like the French government pay to have journalists released, which means for people like us, Australians, Brits, Americans whose governments will never pay for you, we are walking cash machines. So please don't go. Don't think about it. <laughs> Not right Look, now. Uh, Janine, honestly, that was a fabulous session. Thank you. And I really, yes, I'm, thank you. And I'm saying they like you. Yeah. <laughs> They like you. Okay. Uh, now, you're going to be signing books, aren't yeah. you? Signing and I can, books. if people have a question or two, I can try to answer you. Um, oh, don't, don't invite, you, you will okay. never get away. <laughs> anyway, look, uh, thank you very much. And thanks for being here. And I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank, thank you. you.